crazy when the mass exodus happens of kids leaving, but I think everybody's getting settled. Okay, so today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. And we've been in Hebrews now for about two weeks. And what we've really seen so far is that we don't know a whole lot of historical information about this book, such as who wrote it, who it was written to, and when it was written. But what we do know is that this was written to a predominantly Jewish Christian audience, and that this, these people were being persecuted for their faith. And because of this persecution, these believers were starting to think, maybe we should go back to Judaism. That way we won't be persecuted. And so one of the reasons we see Hebrews was written was to encourage believers uh, just to persevere in their faith in the midst of persecution. And as Jeremy pointed out last week, there's also this popular movement to study angels and to worship and elevate angels. And so we see why the author is addressing angels so much in these first couple of chapters. And he's not necessarily tearing them down, but he's lifting up Jesus, saying he is better than angels. And so that's pretty much the theme that we are going to see throughout this entire book, that Jesus is better, that he is better than the angels, that he's better than Moses, that he's better than anything in this world. And because Jesus is better, that should encourage Christians to persevere in their faith in the midst of persecution and suffering. So as we look to chapter 2, we're going to see right off the bat there's a therefore. And whenever you're reading scripture, it's always a good idea to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And not only is this a good way to help you understand what you're reading, but it helps you from going on autopilot, which I may or may not be guilty of when I read the Bible. So it's just a better way to help you wrestle with the text. And another thing about therefore is that it always points you back to something that the author had previously said. And so what is this chapter two therefore pointing us to? It's what we covered last week in chapter one, which is Jesus is greater than the angels. He is not an angel. The angels aren't even on the level near him. And so how is he greater? One, the name that he inherited was greater, that he's given the title, the son of God. Two, he's at the right hand of the father, which means that he is God. And then three, that the angels serve him and worship him. And just for a point of reference, you know, there's times in the Bible when people encounter angels and then they just fall on their faces. Uh, There's even a place in the book of Revelation where John tries to worship an angel to which he rightly says, cut that out. But what the author describes in chapter one is that when angels encounter the glorified Jesus, they are falling on their faces and worshiping him. Isn't that incredible that Jesus glory and power is so great that beings who we would be tempted to worship if we encountered are falling on their faces to worship him. It's just an incredible picture of who Jesus is. And that's what the author is trying to do in chapter 1, is he is just painting this amazing picture of Christ and is going to set the stage for the rest of the book. And so now, with us keeping these things in mind, what we're going to see today is that the author is pointing us to the necessity of the gospel that Jesus preached and how he accomplished our salvation and why. So let's look at chapter 2. Then 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection unto his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, children, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." So we see the author follows this, therefore, with the exhortation in verse 1 that they must all pay much closer attention to what they heard. And the what that he's referring to is the gospel, which we actually see him expound on later in the second half of the chapter. And his argument is pretty much straightforward. If Jesus is God, then the message he brought us is really important, and we must pay attention to it. Look back at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, where he says, In many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And what that means is, is that God has delivered his final message to the world. And he delivered it through Jesus. And we see that Jesus is the final word from God. And that really lines up with what the rest of Scripture says, because in John, the book of John, at the very beginning, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John is saying that Jesus is the Word. So, it really makes sense that God's final word to us would be the Word, with a capital W. But, none of this really matters if you don't believe that Jesus is God. So my question to you today is, what do you believe about Jesus? Is he God or is he something else? 
Because the issue is, is that you cannot be neutral about him. You either have to believe that he is God, or he's a liar and evil, or he's just plain crazy. C.S. Lewis made this argument famous, and he says it like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So the idea here is that you have to pick a side when it comes to Jesus. There's no neutral ground. We either have to believe he's the one who the Hebrews author in chapter 1 says, or else we have no rescue. We have no hope. And if he is God, then we have to pay close attention to what he said, to the good news that he brought us, or like the author says in verse 1, we risk drifting away. And in verse 1, the author uses this nautical imagery here of drifting away. And although nautical imagery is probably less effective in this part of the world, I still get this picture that comes to mind that we're all in boats drifting on a river and there's a waterfall up ahead. And the gospel is the only dock available to us. And we, can, we can either can anchor ourselves to that or we drift away. And it's really easy for us to drift, right? Like drifting is slow. It's subtle. There are lots of things that can cause us to drift away from God. For the audience of the letter, it was persecution and angels. But for us today, it could be something like comfort, how much time and effort we spend to be comfortable or pursue entertainment. Another cause of drifting could be familiarity with church and religious things. And by familiarity, I mean thinking of like, okay, I get the gospel. When can we get on from the gospel? And we start to drift away because we don't engage God in his word anymore. Another way we drift is by making good things into ultimate things. Whether it's your job, your status, your family, college football team but we can take good things and when we make them the priority in our lives then we start to drift away from god that we get so caught up in the daily grind of life worried about these things in life that when we look up we see that god is now far away from us and like jeremy said last week you're either drifting away from god or you're anchored to him and following him And that's the warning the author is giving to his audience. Be careful. Don't let this great salvation go by. We see he appeals even further to them using the Old Testament in verse 2. And that's where he's saying, since the message proclaimed by angels proved to be reliable. What he's referring to is the Old Testament law. And so 
if you're familiar at all with the law, you know that it's a bunch of rules and regulations that helped guide God's people through social and moral and religious living. And there's several times throughout the Old Testament, God says, if you follow me, if you obey my law, then you will prosper as a nation. But if you don't, then you're going to fail. And so if you're perusing through First and Second Kings for some light reading, you will see the, the whole rise and fall of Israel is directly correlated to their commitment or lack thereof to God and his, his law. And so what the author is really trying to get at here is that God is true to his word. And so if he is true to the law that was communicated to man by angels, how much more so is he going to be true to the word that he says in Jesus? And so he answers that with a rhetorical question. How can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We can't. We're going to go over the waterfall. And that's the ultimate warning that we see in the passage. That if we neglect the gospel, if we neglect this great salvation, we will end up before God facing his judgment, we'll fall short, and we'll go to hell. Now, that is a pretty blunt warning, and it is a very true consequence if we don't follow Christ. But notice how the author doesn't stop here. He doesn't say, all right, the end. Start repenting, you sinners, lest you want to burn in hell. Now, some of you might have come from a background where you've heard that message in church. This idea of scaring you into heaven because you don't want to burn in hell. That is not the gospel. That is a part of the gospel that has been manipulated and abused by pastors because it's easy to twist people's arms to try to get confessions of faith in Christ. There's so much more to the gospel than just fear-mongering people out of hell. And we see the author of Hebrews shows us this in the rest of the chapter because he's going to point us to the founder of our salvation and show us who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's almost as if he's saying, look at who he is. Look at what he's done for you. So let's look at the rest of the chapter. I'm going to go through 6 through 8 again. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower for the you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything into subjection under his feet. And so what the author's quoting here is Psalm 8. And most commentators agree that this is about mankind, that this isn't a messianic text. And it's really talking about the ideal state of man that we see with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And also pointing to the day when God will renew creation and restore it under man, mankind's rule and subjection. But the author really pivots here and says, this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We see that in verse 9. But I want to point out a hard fact in verse 8. And this is a fact that we are painfully aware of. That at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And this is obvious to us, right? Like there is tremendous evil and suffering in the world, and we are not exempt from that. And so this is probably the most common objection I've heard to people believing in God, because they say, how can an all-loving, all-powerful God exist when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? So the other day, 
I was watching one of the Cabillion Spider-Man movies that have been made recently. And I would say they all kind of follow the similar storyline. That Spider-Man saves New York from being taken over, or the world. Or he stops men from inflicting mass damage and death upon people. He even saves bank robber, stops bank robberies. Only to have to do it again tomorrow. And that got me thinking. You know, there's really no end to Spider-Man's job. Like, he can't retire. He's literally going to fight crime until it kills him. Because there's always bad people. So, in, my, in response to people's objection of God because of evil, my question is this. What ultimate good, and I say what ultimate good would it do if God came in and stopped bad people from doing bad things? Yes, it would prevent great tragedies and temporary relieved suffering. But, if he simply stops people's bad actions, is the real problem going to go away? People are still going to do bad things. There's no lasting change that's going to come from behavior modification because the source of our behavior is tainted. And the type of action that people tend to want out of God is to be a superhero and to come in and stop bad things that are happening. But if he does that today, then what about tomorrow or the next day? To take it a step further, what bad things should he stop? Just the really bad things? People like murderers. So in 1 John three fifteen, John writes, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Ooh. Oh boy. Has anyone ever picked their kid up from Austin Elementary in the designated pickup lanes? <laughs> if you said yes to that, then according to John, more than likely you're guilty of murder. Well, I say that for me at least. Because that is a surefire way to ignite my anger towards fellow man. Because who turns left in an entryway when there's 20 cars in line? Like, no, I'm not going to. All right. Anyways. So. And if you are that person, then Jesus can save you. So. (laughs) If we follow that train of thought. Just realizing that the God of the Bible is holy that he hates all sin, then the picture of who God needs to stop gets wider and wider until we realize that who we're calling him to stop is all of us. But that's not God's plan. So what is? The author is going to show us in verses 9 and 10 and 14 through 16. So I'll touch on that again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of salvation perfect through suffering. And then 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So there's a lot going on in these verses. I mean, you could have multiple sermons over this one chapter. Which is part of my angst towards Jeremy for giving me this whole chapter. But... uh, (laughs) 
But that's one reason why being in a gospel community group is so beneficial, because you can go into so much more depth than I'm allowed in 30 to 45 minutes. So if there's something that I didn't touch on or cover, then blast your GC leaders with those questions. That's what you're encouraged to do. So there's my 10-second commercial for GC. Let's move on. We see in these verses that God's plan for us is our restoration, that he wants to deliver us from the slavery of Satan and death and bring us to glory with Christ by adopting us as his children. And how does he do this? By having Jesus become man, take on flesh, suffer and die on our behalf to become the founder of our salvation. Now, you, know, you got to keep in mind, for the original audience, this idea of the Messiah suffering would have been extremely unpopular. Because for Jews, the Messiah is coming to establish the kingdom of God. He's God. He's not going to suffer. Why would he? He's bringing the kingdom. He's the king. But in verse 10, it says it was fitting that he, God, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. But what does that even mean? Isn't Jesus already perfect? So what the author is getting at here is this, this idea of bringing to completion. In the sense that suffering and death was necessary before Jesus could be the complete founder of our salvation. And so that is why on the cross Jesus says, it is finished. Because the rescue mission was completed. That's also why in verse 14 of Hebrews, the author says that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. And the word destroy is really important here because it's not being used in the sense of wiping out of from existence. What he's meaning is it's the sense of disarming or voiding out the power of Satan. Because if you look in scripture, another name for Satan is called the accuser. Or the, the prosecutor. And when we die, we will stand before God and Satan will be there with us, opening up a book of our sin, ready to make a case against us before God. But through Jesus' death, he becomes our substitute, thereby nullifying Satan's power to condemn us. Paul puts it this way. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, i.e. Satan, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In him. So Jesus disarms Satan by giving us his righteousness and thereby destroying Satan's case against us before God. Jesus is able to do this because he is the founder of our salvation and our great high priest. So let's look at how he is the founder of our salvation. In verse 10, the word that the author uses for founder can also be translated as pioneer. And I actually like that translation better because it gives me the imagery that Jesus had to blaze a trail to us in order to save us and bring us to God. 
It was his work that provides the way to salvation and redemption with God. And this is a completely unique view to any other religion in the world. Any other religion that has a God or gods tells you, God's on the mountain, work your way up to him, do better, be good, work harder, and then you'll achieve your salvation. But the gospel tells us different. The gospel tells us that God is on the mountain looking down at us and saying, I'm coming for you. And that he sends Jesus to pioneer a way to blaze a trail for us by taking on flesh and becoming a man so that he could live a perfect life and be the perfect sacrifice for us. In Romans 3.23, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. So that means in order to pay for sin or to atone for it, death has to occur. And we see that in chapter 9 of Hebrews, the author affirms affirms this idea saying, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so I've I've heard people ask before, like, God's all-powerful, so why can't he just wipe out sin? And just wave a wand and go, boop, like, you're all good. Just consider that that is not how the world works at all, okay? So say, for example, you hit my truck with your car and you rip off my bumper. We can all agree that damage has been done, okay? So at this point, one of us has to pay for the damage. Now, you can try to change your view of how you look at the damage. You can minimize it. Say, like, who needs bumpers anyways? Or you could you blame me for the damage even. You can say, why did you park in your driveway when I was deciding to drive through it? Like, but no matter how you view it or look at the damage, it's still there. Someone has to pay for it. Now, this is where the analogy can start to break down because we could be tempted to be like, okay, well, I'll pay for my sin. What do I owe? But scripture is clear that we have no way of paying for our sin. That we don't sin in a vacuum. We sin against God and other people and payment is due. It costs something. And we see Jesus is the only one with the currency to be able to pay for it. So not only is he the founder of our salvation, but in verses 17 and 18, it shows us that he is our great high priest. Now, for most of us, the office of high priest probably holds little significance because it mainly had to do with Judaism, and the last high priest that even existed was back in 70 AD. So let's do a little bit of background and information on what the high priest's role was. So there are many priests in Judaism. But there's only one high priest, and he was elected by the other priests. And his main role was that once a year, he would go into the temple, into the innermost room called the Holy of Holies, where God dwelled, and he would make a sacrifice once a year for the people of Israel. And now there are a ton more functions and roles of the high priest, but that's what we're going to focus on today. That's the gist, because... What we see in these verses is that Jesus is our great high priest. Because not only the sacrifice that he offers to God on our behalf is perfect, but he can never die. He can never tire. He is constantly and always our high priest. He is our mediator to God. And he grants us access to the Father so that we can boldly go before him. 
verse 17, it says that he was made like us in every respect. And God did this so that we would have a mediator who can identify and relate to us. Because not only because he knows what suffering is like because he suffered, but he can... He knows what temptation is like because he's been tempted like we have. And it says in verse 16 that he helps the offspring of Abraham, which is just another way of saying the children of God. So he is the great high priest who can and wants to help you in your time of need. And by time of need, I don't mean only the times that you are in way over your head. In the text here, it says that he is able to help those who are being tempted Which implies that when we are being tempted to sin, that our first response should be to go to him. But to be honest, that is against our nature, right? When it comes to sin. Because most of us, when dealing with sin and temptation, think we can handle it. Only for it to inevitably overtake us. And then we hit the panic button and call out for help. It's kind of like our spiritual life is like a house. And... Sin is like we're playing with matches in a room. And eventually the room catches on fire and we go, whoops, that escalated quickly. Didn't see that coming. And we shut the door and we say, there, it's been contained. And the rest of the house isn't on fire, so this is great. Only to find a little while later the house is burned to the ground. And then we look to God and say, hey, can you fix this? So church, don't wait Until sin has overtaken you. Go to Jesus. Trust that he will be enough in a moment of temptation. Because he is both our example of righteousness. And he also helps us attain that righteousness. We only have to ask him. And he will be faithful and merciful to us. So if you've struggled with the idea that God seems indifferent to you. Or he doesn't care about what's going on in your life. From what we've seen in the verses today, does this paint a picture of a God who doesn't care? We see Jesus, who has been with God since the beginning of time, who knew no suffering, who had every right to stay in heaven with God, became a man so that he could die for us. And when he was on the cross, he faced the ultimate suffering. That he faced the full wrath of God towards our sin so that he could taste death and hell in order that we wouldn't have to. This should stir our hearts and our affections towards Jesus. Because that is the mark of a true Christian. One who loves Jesus above everything else. That we treasure him. And because we love him, then we will obey his commandments. We will model ourselves after him we will search the scriptures to see how he lived to see what he valued and to see how he dealt with temptation and suffering because what we love and value the most it affects our actions and our uh, thoughts and beliefs it affects how we spend our time it affects how we spend our money it affects how we view others it affects everything That's why we must pay closer attention to this gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to make a way to you. I pray 
that your spirit opens our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, that we won't neglect this great salvation that you've offered us. Help us to turn to you. Stir our affections towards you, Jesus, that we would treasure you above everything else. We love you, Father, and we ask these things in his name. Amen.